0: Let's begin. We have a lot to cover today. Somehow I got to make up for two classes, one that I missed and one that we had a guest speaker. So we'll see how many attributes we can cover, probably four or five, and then we'll try to make up the rest after Christmas break. We'll not be meeting for equipping classes the next two Sundays. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and so the children will be practicing music in here and getting everything ready, so we're not going to meet then. And then New Year's Eve, we'll not have class either. Nobody's having class those mornings. And we'll be back in January, the first Sunday. So that's the next time we'll meet. Let me open in prayer and we'll get started with God's omnipresence. Lord, I thank you for this morning time to come together to learn your word, to learn about you, help us to grow closer to you through studying scripture, help us to know good theology. We pray, Lord, that we can use that for your glory and apply it to our lives and to the church and to all of life. We pray this morning that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, immensity. We've been talking about immensity. Just to review you here, we just talked about eternity. So this was God's infinite time, is, is what we're talking about with eternity. So God's infinity in time. Well, when we talk about God's infinity in space, that's called immensity in theological terms. Omnipresence is the way we typically refer to it. Omni, the Latin word for all. And you know what presence is. So God is everywhere present, all present, present in all space and time. Now we will have to go a little bit quick through these attributes because I want to Stay on track with the schedule as best we can. But there's always more you can learn about the attributes of God. This class is a a systematic theology class, but it's an overview of systematic theology. I remember when I got to seminary, I thought, you know, we're going to go really deep into theology. And we did compared to, you know, maybe what most Christians know. But it was not quite deep enough. You have to get more books and study these out if you're interested. And we have some of those in the bookstore. A lot of books on The Attributes of God, like A.W. Pink's a small book, but very helpful. And then there's other systematic theology books you can pick up. But let's talk more about omnipresence, the immensity of God. This is God's nature that transcends existing and acting beyond all limitations of time and space. It's not just that God fills space. That's, That's the wrong way to think about it. He doesn't just fill space. He transcends. So, he is, uh, he's outside of space and time, but he's also in space and time as well, existing and acting beyond the limitations of time and space. So as I was saying, eternity is God's infinity in time. Omnipresence um, is God's infinity in space. So God is, is perfectly present with himself. We have to start there. And God is perfectly present with himself. That might seem like that's obvious, But there are some religious beliefs that don't think that's obvious. That somehow God has changed or gone outside of Himself or taken on the world as His body and so on. He transcends all limitation of space and yet is present with every point of space with all that He is. So what does that mean? That God transcends all space and fills all space? Well, it means that God is with us now. That God is... Every place, you know, those scripture verses that speak of even in Sheol and the highest heaven. That means that God is all present, omnipresent. That means that the old myth that Satan reigns over hell and God is nowhere to be found isn't true. Because God is where? Everywhere. Or when you sin and you think God's not going to see my sin, or you pretend that he's not looking or it's too dark for him to see, That's silly because God is everywhere all the time. So there's a lot of of practical application to these attributes as we study them. And uh, I hope that you'll think about that. You'll meditate on these things. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we can count on God, our God, the one we trust in, to know our situation and to help us through every trial. He's not abandoned us. And as far as the unbeliever goes... He's always there as well. They could call upon him through Christ, but he's always there even in their eternal punishment if they reject Christ. So let's look at some Bible verses on this. We get our theology from the Bible. This is not philosophical theology where we just think in our head, oh, I wonder what God is like, and start reasoning from there. Now we reason from Scripture. And so there is a lot of verses to look at. We're just going to pick a few here. Let's do Psalm 139. The Psalms are great for the attributes of God. I, I say go to, go to Psalms, go to Isaiah, and then Exodus. And you probably have the three major books speaking of God's attributes. Psalm 139, 7-10. to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can we go that God's spirit is not there? Or where can I flee from your presence? So David here is just asking a rhetorical question. If I ascend to heaven you are there. So the, the highest place you could go, heaven. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So the, the lowest, darkest place you can go, God is there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So how encouraging is that? Like, the God is always with us. Don't, don't say, don't know we're tempted to, that God is not with me, as a believer especially, right? You know Christ is in you, and you're in Christ, and the Spirit is in you. But but anyone, you, you can't run from God. Jonah tried that, right? Whether it was the bottom of the ocean, or in the well's belly, or back on land, God was right there. So this ought to be a comfort to the believer. Let's now go to Isaiah 63, 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The tumults within you and your compassion are restrained toward me. So from God's glorious heaven, he is over all things. But he's also, we know that he's in all things as well. And since I mentioned Exodus, we'll go back to Exodus Exodus, what was it, 25, 8. God makes very clear to Israel who he is. And this is why we find so many statements from God about himself in Exodus. He wants them to know what kind of God he is, who he is. So Exodus 25, 8. And let them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So the tabernacle and then the temple is a sanctuary where God dwells. So he is present everywhere. But he also has his special presence, we might say. It's it's hard for us to grasp what that means. What's the difference in his special presence and his omnipresence? Well, special presence is just a manifestation of his omnipresence. He's there in a way that blesses. He's there in a way that blesses Israel through dwelling with them in the tabernacle. But it doesn't mean he's somehow evacuated all of time and space. He's still everywhere. Even as Christ hung on the cross, his divinity still upheld all the molecules in the universe. All the molecules that made up the cross, his divinity holds up as his humanity is dying on the cross. That is mind-boggling when you think about it. Let's go to the New Testament, Acts 17:27. So this is Paul speaking again to the To the Greeks here, he's talking to Gentiles. Gentiles who do not really, they don't know God. They don't understand God. They just know that there's a God that exists. We learned in Romans 1 that God makes sure everyone knows of something about him, but not enough about him that they would necessarily be saved by that knowledge. They have to still, of course, trust in Christ. That's where Paul is going with this message. But he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. How is that possible? Because in the conception of the Greeks and the Romans, their gods were were like people and they had some kind of body. And they were either, you know, on Mount Olympus or they would come down from Mount Olympus and, and do things with people. Well, this God, our God, he's everywhere. Not far from us, because he's everywhere. So Paul can say that. He can say God is, is not. Far from us, and in verse 28, even more specifically, for in him we live and move and exist. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So in some way, even though it was not correct and it was was messed up thinking, in some way the ancient Greeks knew, the poets and the philosophers knew, that the only way we could live is if there was a God who gave us life. If there was a God who upheld our life. And yes, they, they got that wrong because they went into idolatry. But Paul's just reasoning here and saying, look, you already know these basics. You couldn't survive if there wasn't a God who was there upholding your life. It's only because of him that we are even alive, taking breath this day. All right. Do we want to do any more of these? So which, which can we say? God is everywhere. Or God is in the believer. Both, right? It's both, yeah. Special presence to bless in the believer, upholding their life, eternal life with Him. But God is also everywhere. He he doesn't just fill, He transcends. That's one thing we have to be careful. Sometimes we think it's a good thing to say, you know, we serve a big God. How big is big? What does it mean? We we serve an infinite God, would be better. Of course, even then, you, you can parse that down and it's not... The way that mathematicians speak of infiniteness, infinity. But we serve a God that can't be measured. That's how the Bible talks about Him. Not just a big God, but He can't be measured. Big doesn't fit God, right? Big, bigger, biggest doesn't even work when describing God. God most high, who possesses, He owns all things. So He's in the believer to bless. He's also over all things. He's also in all things. So let's talk about some specific statements we can make about his omnipresence. He transcends space. God is these attributes inherently. So even if there's not time and space, he's still omnipresent. He's always present with himself. There's no time and space. So what does that mean that he's omnipresent? Well, there's still God himself. He's present with himself and with relation to creation once he creates. Space is a creation, thus not part of God nor does he surround it. These are pantheism, panentheism, all kinds of, of bad theological concepts out there. And this is very popular today, you know. That the God, is, God is in this. Not just that God upholds all things, but, you know, God is in this remote control. And, and if, we, if we bow down to it, that's fine, you know. If we, if we put an image of God on a painting and put it on our wall in our home... And we worship it. That's fine because God is in those things. Or he's in the trees as, as some people like to worship the trees. That's where that kind of theology starts. That because God, they believe, is contained in something, it's fine to worship that thing. And that's incorrect. That's bad theology. And he's not just around it. It's not like there's an earth and God is just surrounding the earth. And, you know, people used to think if we could get to space, then we could meet God. And then the Russians got to space first and they were atheist communists. And they said, you know, well, that first guy said, I've I've gone to space and there is no God. Because he couldn't see God. Well, he's met God by now. And God is not somehow surrounding the earth or somehow visible when you get to outer space. God's not diffused through space so that only part of him is in each place. That's an important thing to think about. It's not like there's a piece of God in this molecule and in this molecule and in this molecule and he's sort of just diffused everywhere. No, he's fully present in every point in space. Fully present. But he's not bound to one place. So all we can really do, some of these attributes, especially these incommunicable ones, is describe what it's not. Okay? He's not bound by space. He's not diffused through space. He's fully in every place, but he's also sustaining space by his immensity. So he's fully there but he upholds it all as well. It does not mean this does not mean that he is separate from creation. So a lot of deists or this philosopher named Kant believe that he is he he is somewhere he's created the space and then sort of just stands back. You know the the deist the classical american god is god sort of set everything in motion he, he built it, and then he wound up the clock, and he said, I'll see you when it's done. And he stepped back. A lot of early people in our nation believe that, and that's kind of become the culture of our nation. You know, it's kind of up to you now. God's God has no part in this. You know, he's created it. Now it's up to you. You've got to take care of the earth. you got to make sure it lasts. You've got to work for salvation. You've got to do all these things. You know, it's a, if it's going to be, it's up to me kind of attitude. And... That's not the God of the Bible. He is distinct from creation. Yes, we cannot call the creation God. But he is in all creation. He upholds all creation. But not in a sense that we worship creation. That would be God contained in something that he created. He's greater than all things. So what does he do? He upholds the created order. How does he do that? It's by his presence in his entirety with the whole created order, and with every point of space, with heaven, hell, righteous, and the wicked. Don't say and believe that God's not present in hell. The Bible's real clear. He's present to do what? He's present to punish. He's present in heaven to bless, and the eternal new heavens, new earth. But he is, he's the one doing the punishment in hell. It's not Satan with a pitchfork. Satan's the first one that's thrown into hell, if you read the book of Revelation. The the final version of hell, the lake of fire, Satan and his demons, then all the unbelievers. Difficult to understand sometimes as we try to get our minds around this. What does it mean that God upholds all things, is fully present in every point? This is why it's an incommunicable attribute. There's no way that in any sense that we can be this, do this, become this. People who believe, again, false religions who believe that one day we'll have this, that we'll kind of We die and we go into the the nothingness. Our spirit joins all the other spirits and we become part of the universe. That's just another way of saying when we die, we become little gods. We don't. When we die, our soul goes somewhere and that's where we're at. And when we're resurrected, our body and soul is somewhere and that's where we're at. We're not going to die and then our soul gets diffused, you know. Sometimes people take ashes and throw them in the ocean as if the person is now diffused around the world and their soul somehow goes with those. That's not that's that's a pagan idea that our soul gets diffused throughout the universe. Only God is throughout and he's not diffused but only he is omnipresent. So it's better to say when we're talking about time and space that God is with time and space instead of in time and space. But we often just say both. So I think it's fine to say both. But if you get really specific, it's he's with it. Because he's not the same as time and space. Again, hard to conceptualize. Uh, Both are okay to say as long as you don't describe God as of time or bound by time. That's the distinction. We have to make clear that God is not bound by time or somehow sticking, if you want to use that, with time as a creation. Okay, so can you measure God? No. Because he transcends space. And you have to have something to measure if you're going to measure it, right? And that's in space. Again, God does not stretch himself out. He does not divide himself up. He does not mix with his creation. These are false beliefs about God. So this is just a way of saying what God is not. And that's the way we have to do a lot of these attributes. Any questions on that? Let's talk about God's unity. This is a different attribute. This is, again, an incommunicable attribute. We're still on that. And this is his attribute of unity, of oneness. We are spirit and we are body. We are two parts. Not three parts, like some believe, but we're two parts. The the immaterial is the soul, sometimes called the spirit. That's the same thing in the Bible. Different emphasis when you use spirit versus soul, but still the same part. And we're body. God is one. He is not divided in any way. His unity is his perfect uniqueness of essence. Essence talks about being, who he is, what his nature is. So that neither is he more than one essence, nor is he more than one divine essence. So this is clear in the Bible. God wants us to understand this. He told Israel, even though he did not reveal the details about the Trinity, he made sure now they understood that God is one. So let's look at Deuteronomy 4. God is not three gods. God is not multiple gods. God is not a combination of all the mythological gods of ancient times. God is one. So this is something that the, the Jews would then teach their children from the days of Moses, even until now. They, they memorize the beginning here of Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And uh, we'll, we'll start Deuteronomy 6 and go back to 4, sorry. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. So here's something they would memorize as children and then repeat. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And my, my translation has an exclamation point there. Meaning this, this is an emphasis. This is something that they would almost want to shout out. And then it goes into commandments that God gives them. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the one God, the creator God, the God who has come to them and made a covenant with them. Now, if we go back to Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God. So God has revealed himself first to Moses and then through Moses to the whole nation. And this is God. He is God. Yahweh, their God. They've learned his personal name, Yahweh. There is no other besides him. It's not like there's other gods. Even though the Bible will speak of other gods, it's speaking in terms that man is familiar with. Because man worships other gods, but they're really not gods. The Bible goes on to tell us they're demons, who pose as gods, and then people start worshiping them and, and have an object like an idol and call them a god. But there's truly no other gods. There is one god, and Yahweh, the Lord, is one. This is emphasized in the New Testament as well, even though, of course, we learn of the Trinity. The Trinity is not saying that there's three gods. We'll cover the Trinity in a few weeks when we come back to class after the break. But 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So, the New Testament authors are very clear, inspired by God, of course, but very clear in their theology that there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, we'll we'll kind of talk about those objections to the Trinity when we get there, but that there is a doctrine of the Trinity taught in Scripture does not mean that there's three gods. Now, when we get into the unity of God, we have to talk about this attribute called simplicity. And simplicity is one of the harder ones to think about. It is difficult for us to conceptualize. What is it? It's his indivisibility. His indivisibility. His perfect lack of composition. God's not composed of anything. He is not able to be divided. So what this means is that each of and all his perfections are his essence. It means, at a basic level, just think of it as... God is not composed of parts. He's not part holiness. And you take a little bit of righteousness and you take some simplicity and you take... Well, that that wouldn't even work, right? You take some satiety and you take some omnipresence and you mix it all together and you get God. No, we study these different attributes because God reveals himself to be these things In the scriptures. So we can take all the verses on his omnipresence and study that. We can take all the verses on his spirituality and study that. But that does not mean that God is like a, a piece of pie that you can just carve out these different chunks and divide him up. He cannot be divided. That's what it means that something is one, perfectly one. The oneness of God cannot be divided up. So, scriptural proof. Well, it's not asserted in one verse. Like the Trinity, you don't go to... Which verse says Trinity in the Bible? Anybody got a verse for me? Because what is that? That's a later word that is used to describe the teaching in the Bible that God is one God in three persons. Well, simplicity is a word later used to describe the essence, the nature, the being of God. So here's how the Westminster Confession deals with those questions where there's not just one verse and you've got to look at different verses and put it together. They say about the Bible, it's the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory. Man's salvation, faith, and life. So these are the things that God gives the Bible for. That we can glorify him, that we can learn about ourselves, our, our need for salvation. We can learn about what it takes to be saved, which is only faith and life after We have faith. How do we live? And it's either expressly set down in Scripture. That's where you can say, oh, I can go right to that verse and it tells me X, Y, Z. Or, by good and necessary consequences, may be deduced from Scripture. That means there may not be one specific verse that says what we want it to say. But if we take all the verses on that and we think about that and we organize that in our thinking, which is theology... And we put that together and now state it. That is what they're talking about here. Because what happens if you take that underlying part out of your your belief system, then you're just, you're sort of like this. Oh, flee away, turn back, inhabit the depths. Oh, inhabitants of end. Okay, there you go. Okay, what's that mean? See, God gave us the whole Bible. Not just one chapter of, what did I turn to? Jeremiah. Not just one book. He gives us the whole Bible And he doesn't tell us everything about himself in any one book. Yes, there's a lot in the Psalms and Isaiah and Exodus, like I said. But he gives us the whole Bible. And things are progressively revealed throughout the Bible. So you're going to have a difficult time in the Old Testament building a real strong case for the Trinity. There are things there, of course. We can find things about the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus. We can find things about the Spirit. But you go to the New Testament and there's lots of clear verses that teach us about the doctrine of the Trinity. So good and necessary consequences means that we take all the verses about a certain subject, we put them together and come up with our theology, which is systematic theology. It's just that some verses are very specific and others, we have to work a little harder to put them together. And it's not just simplicity, there'll be some others. I think we've already talked about some others as well. Okay, where do we get this from? Well, we build it from... These statements about God is. God is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Does Jesus say, I am truthful? Well, he is truthful, but is that what he's saying there? What is he saying when he says, he is? He's talking about who he is. His nature, his being. He is the only way. He is truth. Not just truthful, but he is truth. And he is the life. He gives life. He is the life-giving source, as we know God is. God is righteous, Jeremiah 23, 6. Not just that he acts righteously. We would expect that if he is righteous, he will act righteously. But this is who he is. We cannot say we are truth, right? That would be a lie if I said, I am truth. I am righteousness. But God can say that about himself because that's who he is. God is wisdom, 1 Corinthians one thirty. He He is wisdom. He is perfect wisdom. God is spirit. That's John four twenty four when he's talking to the woman at the well, and she says, "Oh, well, you go to Jerusalem, and Samaritans they they go up to is it Mount Gerizim? Is that right? Where do the Where do the people? They still today they sacrifice animals. I think it's Mount Gerizim. They the Samaritans go up and sacrifice animals on this mountain, and you go to this mountain. Which one's right? She's testing him, and he says. Well, we worship what we know and you worship what you don't know. But there's a time coming where people will worship God in spirit and truth. They won't go to the temple to worship God. They'll worship God in their own hearts, in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit. God is spirit. Not God is the Holy Spirit. Some, some translations might capitalize that. But God is spirit. Which we'll hopefully get to spirituality in a bit. So, God is spirit. God is light. John 1.5. God is light. God is life. God is love. Now most people just uh, in our society today take God is love and that's it. You know, they're done with the attributes. No, that would be taking one attribute and sort of obliterating the rest and not thinking about God according to what the Bible says. God is holiness. And We could just keep going with multiple verses to build this. And so here, here's what this is saying. If God is truth, And God is love. How much of God is truth and how much of God is love? All of them. Well, how can it be all of them? That's why theologians just end up saying, he's all of these in himself. And all of these are him. This is who God is. Outside of God's attributes and what he tells us about himself, what can we say about God? We can only say what he's told us about himself. But he's revealed to us. Without God revealing something to us, we're just guessing. This is where all false religions get started. They just start to come up with something about God that's in their brain. And the philosophers can do the same sometimes. So when you take all of these, and he's not just saying God is part truth. God is, the Bible doesn't say God is part righteous, part wisdom. God is these things. And so the only way we can think about this is to say he is all of these in himself. So simplicity is therefore deduced from these verses of scripture because they reveal God as the complete fullness of each respective quality. He's the complete fullness in himself of truth and love and all of these things. Now this does not contradict the, the Trinity. God, His essence, his being is not composed of three persons. That's not the Trinity. We'll cover this in more detail later. His divine essence exists, but it's not compounded. In each of the three persons. It's not like there's three persons and then there's some of God in each of the three persons. The various personal properties, this comes from my seminary notes from Dr. Mook's class, by the way, that's why it sounds very seminary level. The various personal properties unique to each person of the Trinity are not things added to the essence, but are only relational distinctions, not essential distinctions. That sounds very nerdy, but what it means is, when we study God's attributes, we study them, as I said, as they relate to us. As, as God acts towards us and tells us about that in the Bible, we can then study God's love. But these are not, in his essence, a distinction that we could make. In other words, If you could see God, which you can't, but if you could, you could not sit there and look at him and say, yeah, I see that part about love over here, and there's that part of righteousness in him, and no, the only way you know God's righteousness, his love, his holiness is what? As he expresses it towards us. That's how we know it. We know it through experience, but that does not mean, reasoning backwards, that God in his actual nature can be divided up into those things. Number four, also in each action towards us, the entire Trinity acts without essential division. This is called the inseparable operations. Again, this is a deeper level of theology here, but it's important when we come to salvation, especially. Is it just the Father acting in salvation? Is it just the Son acting in salvation? Is it just the Spirit acting in salvation? On the cross, is it just the Son acting? Is it just the Father? Is it just the Spirit? You cannot separate the Trinity. When God acts, God acts. And you cannot separate the Trinity in the sense of saying, well, this is just the Father. Now, the Bible will emphasize the work of the Son on the cross. And the Spirit, you're not going to see mentioned a lot right when Jesus is on the cross. Yet, we know that God can't be separated even in His operations. So now it's just an emphasis. It's like you take the diamond and you look at one facet of it and you're focused on that one side of the diamond but you still have the whole diamond in your hand. You didn't split up the diamond to look at it. You're just turning it around and focusing on this. Now we're focusing on this. And that's how the authors of scripture will describe God. So in in 1 John 4, John is talking about God's love. Not because God doesn't have other attributes. But because that's the emphasis he wants to make, saying that we ought to love one another just as God loved us. And God is love. And if we're to imitate our Father in heaven, then we're to love one another. He's just got one side of the diamond, and he's talking about that right now. And then other parts of his book and other authors of Scripture will look at other facets of the diamond. So inseparable operations. Very important when it comes to soteriology. And in all things, really, I mean, upholding the universe. Is it the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit that upholds the universe? It's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? When it comes to salvation, does the Father elect and the Son just say, you know, I'm going to see who believes in me. And then the Spirit regenerates God's elect. No, that would be separating operations out. The Father elects, the Son dies for the elect, and then God's Spirit regenerates the elect. Okay, I'm getting off track on soteriology. That's going to be all of next fall. Soteriology. Systematic theology part three. Okay, simplicity does not blur distinctions of God's attributes. So just because we're studying one attribute at a time, we are not saying that God is parts, but we're also, when we say that God is one in all of these, and all of these are one in Him, we're not saying that there's no distinction. The distinction comes again from how he expresses them to us. That's how we know them. Though every attribute is identical with the divine being, the attributes are nevertheless dissection, for each attribute expresses something special. So we can't dissect God's nature, but we can look at each one as they're expressed towards us, because that's the way the Bible describes them. Here's how Joel Beeky and Paul, Paul Smalley, we don't want to leave Dr. Smalley out, sometimes we... We just say, Joe Beeky, systematic theology. But they say, we find an analogy in the colors of the rainbow. So I love this analogy. And we went through this in the men's leadership. And this was great. We all really like this. An analogy in the colors of the rainbow. For us to understand and appreciate God's attributes, we must view the full spectrum of colors through the prism of God's word. But in God, the attributes shine as a single, infinitely brilliant light. So there's, there's this white light. It's bright. It's, it's glorious. Not even, white's probably not the best description. And it's a bright light. But you put it through the prism and now you can study the different colors. That's, that's an analogy. It's not perfect, of course. But that's an analogy to what we're doing with scripture. The Bible's our prism. And through the Bible, we see who God is. And it talks to us and it tells us and it teaches us about his attributes. But they're all one in God. Here's A.W. Pink. Again, if you want a little book on the attributes of God, still gives good detail. It's just not a thousand pages. Many of our members have studied the attributes of God through A.W. Pink. Okay. We're done with simplicity. If you have questions, well, we all have questions about simplicity because it's hard to grasp. So ask Frank. (laughs) Yeah, Frank taught a whole class on the attributes of God for how many weeks? 18 weeks one time? He probably has more information on each one. Okay. Omniscience. Moving along here omniscience. Okay, what's omni? You should know we've talked about it. That's Latin for all. And guess what? Science was not the technical thing we think of uh, today. Science just means knowledge. So some of the older translations like the King James would talk about knowledge as science. Now we think, oh, science, that's, you know, measuring things, chemistry, biology, and supposedly religion and science are opposed to each other. So we can't put science in the Bible and none of that's the case, but originally the word just meant knowledge in Latin. So what is omniscience? God knows all things. God knows all things. Not only is he present even when you're sinning, but he knows all things, which means he knows you're sinning. He knew beforehand that you were going to sin. He knew how sinful you were going to be before he created you, and he still sent his son to die for you if you believe in him. So God's omniscience is his perfect knowing of himself. Again, we skip over that sometimes. Do you perfectly know yourself? The Bible says the, the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's sick. And even as a believer who's been redeemed and been regenerated, you still deceive yourself sometimes. We do not perfectly know ourselves. Only God perfectly knows himself. All actual things outside of himself and all things that do not become a reality in one eternal and simple. Not having parts, but having distinctions. There it is again. Act. Or exertion of energy. So what that means is God knows all things. Things that are actual outside of himself. And things that do not become a reality in one eternal simple act. So God, this is a way of God knowing all things. It's not just saying like the Molinist belief that God knows all possible things that might happen and he's a computer and he computes the best way to get you to take your free will and do what he wants. That's the Molinist God. No, this is God knowing all things that are reality and that have not become reality yet. They're going to, but he's already decreed that, right? Like history, for example. He knows everything. A.W. Pink says everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail on the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. His knowledge is perfect. Just to pull out one, let's just talk about all creatures, people, reason. Well, we can't believe the Genesis account of creation because what we see today doesn't match what we see. What we see today, they think, doesn't match because they, they take what they study today and then they try to work backwards and say, well, there must be billions of years to make this happen, right? We have some great books in the bookstore. For, they're for families, but anybody can read them. I, we read them as a family. I shouldn't say they're for families. They're for everybody, but we read them as a family. And uh, this guy goes through and he studies these things that science says takes billions of years. And the most recent one we read was on caves, and they say, you know, for a stalagmite or stalactite to grow one centimeter takes, you know, a million years or a thousand years, hundred thousand years. And so what he does is he goes around the world and he finds these caves where they have so much calcite coming through the water, dripping through the cave, that these things, in a hundred years, there's this huge stalagmite or stalactite. And it only happens in 50 years, a hundred years. They even take knickknacks to sell at these caves in France And they'll put them on racks under the water. And in three years, you have a perfectly calcified little knick-knack, a cup or a bowl or something like that. So anyway, back to the point here. God knows all things. So when the Bible says it, we're to believe it. If it says that God created in six days, and if we can look at the genealogy and realize we're not talking billions of years, we're talking thousands of years going back to creation. And if it says there's a behemoth, and a leviathan and the the tail is as big as a cedar of Lebanon we're not to say well those don't exist today so therefore it must be a crocodile does a crocodile breathe fire yes there is metaphors there is poetic descriptions in the bible but those descriptions in job of animals are very specific and if god knows all things he would know those things and Job would, of course, know those things. And as God speaks them to Job, there would be an understanding. If those animals have died off, which a lot of animals have died off, God's omniscient. And in the future as well, God knows what's going to happen. In fact, he tells us a lot of that in the Bible. If you read the book of Revelation, you get the, the sense, the big picture of what's going to happen. And then people doubt that. And they say, well, no, the world's going to be destroyed when the sun stops working or when we polluted so much or when the you know, greenhouse gases burn up the earth. And we can make billions of dollars producing movies that scare people about that, right? And people go and they pay their money and they they start to believe that over time. Omniscience is not saying that God knows things that are possible. In God's eternal mind and plan, there are only actual things, not possible things. So from our standpoint, we think of what's possible. But because God has decreed all things that come to pass, there's really nothing that's possible when it comes to God, right? Now that's hard for us to conceptualize. Because we, we did not decree all things, so we do not know what is going to happen. But in God, there is no possible things. In his mind, his plan, it's already been decreed. God knows what would have occurred if circumstances had been different though. But since in his mind and plan, they never would occur, they are not possibilities. That's that's a key distinction that stretches your brain. And that's okay if maybe you don't understand that. You'll come back you know later and study the attributes. It'll make more sense. But... What this is saying is that, okay, God knows what would have happened had he decreed something else, but he decreed what will happen. So there's no possibilities in his mind. So let's look at just a few of these. So God knows all things and he reveals things to us. One of those is salvation. He reveals that. You cannot say, well, you know, I just just chose God. I just chose Christ. Well, you did, but how was that revealed to you? God revealed that in your hearts. Before, you had to have that knowledge and that desire that was given to you by God. God understands us better than we do. He understands us with perfect knowledge. And we don't even understand ourselves. So if there's a contradiction between what you think and what the Bible thinks, guess who's right? God's right. But we, this, is, this is mind-blowing for our people, even Christians. Well, I feel... I I just feel different. And I know, Pastor, and I know, Counselor, that you're saying this, but I feel different. Well, we know what God's Word says. The way you feel needs to match that, or you have some work to do. Man, so much practical application with omniscience, all of these attributes. But God knows what you need before you even ask Him. We still should ask Him. We still should pray as an exercise, and He wants us to do that. And that's part of our worship, but He also knows all things. Some books won't talk about perfection on, on theology because... Really, all of these attributes are dealing with the perfection of each of the attributes. So when we get to the communicable ones, we love, but God loves perfectly. And, and we can have a sense of righteousness, but God is perfectly righteous. And God calls us to be holy. And, and in some ways, we can say we're moving towards that and are holy. But God is perfectly holy. So some books will not section this out differently. Our book that we've been reading, Biblical Doctrine Does, and that's fine. We, we can talk about the perfection of God as its own attributes. Remember, when I covered the intro to the attributes, people have different numbers of attributes, and they, they split it up differently. So, within reason, that's fine. But what is perfection? God is the sum total of all conceivable perfections. Bavink says, The one whom no greater, higher, or better can exist either in thought or reality. So he is the sum total of all conceivable perfections. And the perfections really are another way to describe his attributes. So God is perfect again Bavink and as much as the idea of God fully corresponds to his being and nature. God's greatness and its totality is beyond discovery. So he he is perfect and because he is perfect in all things we can't really even understand God fully. We can understand God as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible, but how does a finite being understand infinity? How does a finite mind understand perfect holiness? We only know what the Bible tells us on that, and even then it's hard to conceptualize. That's why Christians don't study, I think, the attributes. I mean, some is it's just because of laziness and churches don't teach it, but one of these is it's hard mentally, the, this in Christology is some of the hardest doctrine to get your mind around. And, and okay, fine, we will never get our mind fully around it, but we're called to know God better, so we have to understand some of it. We have to try to grow. We have to read the scriptures and put things together and read some good books that will help us with that. But what does it mean that God is perfect in all of his actions? He's perfectly truth and just. Well, we can get an idea. We, we just reason from our standpoint, don't we? We understand what justice is, and God is perfect justice. But we have no experience of what that's like. What is the experience of perfect justice? Have you ever had that experience? Will you ever have that experience? Will you ever have the experience of perfect holiness? Yes, we will be holy without sin going into eternity in the future, after death and after the resurrection. But still not have that experience that God has of perfect holiness. So here's a few verses on that. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. His greatness, his perfection is unsearchable. You can't find the limit of it. You're not able to. You don't have the mental capacity to. You don't have any ability to. Even if you're the smartest person in the world that's ever been born you're still not going to search out the full greatness of God. That's basically how God answers Job, isn't it? Job's complaining. Oh, why'd you do this? Why is all this bad stuff happening in my life? Where were you, God, when I was suffering? And his friends come and make it worse for him. And he says, well, if I could just get a a time with God. It's kind of like today, people say, well, I'll find out all the answers I want to know when I get to heaven. But Job was saying that on earth. He was saying, if I could just get a hearing with God, then he would answer me. And God shows up and says, here's who I am. Look at how great I am. Just look at these creatures. And Job says, whoa, you're right. And look at the stars. Look at the universe. Job says, whoa, I'm sorry, God. I should have never questioned you. I should have never done that. And then he ends up saying, these are just the fringes of God the universe, the stars, the billions of stars, these awesome nebula that you can see with the telescopes we have in space now. And scientists basically worship those pictures. And then you have God saying, and through Job, I'm, that's just a fringe. The very edge of his clothing is the idea. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. This is where we get into trouble comparing ourselves with one another. I'm more righteous than that guy. And I, you know, the, the president, you know, he's unrighteous, but I'm, I'm a good, righteous fellow. Compare yourself to God. Compare yourself to God. Compare yourself to Christ. There's a good target, right? That's Hebrews 12. Focus on the finish line, which is Christ. He is the perfect author of our faith. So God is perfect. He's morally perfect, of course, in his, in his ethics, and his holiness. God's mercy toward those who fear him is greater than man's perception. Again, we cannot perceive God's mercy in the fullest sense. We can only go so far. We can, we can take what the Bible says, take what we're capable of understanding and, and put it all together. But God's mercy is even greater than that. That's encouraging. When you think of God's grace and that brings you to tears and what Christ did for you and how you're a sinner and the truth of it is even greater than that. It's amazing. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I copied some, some of those little letters that are on the Bible software. That's where a lot of these A's and B's and C's get into the text when we're putting it up on the screen because we're copying from Bible software. and the, What are those called? Not footnotes, but... Cross references. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, one time we had a person say, well, that's not fair. I can never be perfect. Why are you guys preaching that? What do we say to him, Frank? It's in the Bible. (laughs) It's in the Bible, first of all. Secondly, this is what we're to focus on and what we're to work towards in our sanctification. And the unbeliever is supposed to recognize they can't be perfect. So in some sense, the guy was right. who said that he can't be perfect. So he needs to look to Christ who is perfect but this tells us about the heavenly father who is perfect. Psalm 103:11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. All right, last one, real quick, spirituality. We've already seen this verse, God is spirit. He's not like a spirit. He's not part spirit. God is spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about that here. We're talking about little s spirit. He's he's spiritual. He has spirituality. He does not have a body. You cannot see God. Because he is spirit. So this also touches on what they call invisibility. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Truth is God's word. Spirit is with our human spirit we worship God. Also our body, of course, linked with our spirit. But biblical doctrine says God's spirituality and invisibility describe his perfect lack of material and the divine essence. So that his essence cannot be perceived by the physical senses. Well, what about Jesus? We'll get to Christology next semester, but that is God taking on flesh. When, when people saw Jesus, they didn't see the divinity. They saw his humanity. Now, there were times where his glory was, was exposed. It came out. He, he unveiled it, and people basically fell down and almost died, like Moses, whose face shone for a long time after he just got a glimpse of God walking by. God is spirit. We already read that. Nowhere is a body assigned to him. That's obvious in Scripture. Even those, those mentions of God's hands and feet, those are uh, anthropomorphisms, uh, descriptions using human parts so we can understand what's being said. Because how do you understand God taking care of you? Well, you use the illustration of maybe a mother who wraps a child in her arms. That does not mean God has arms. That's the way that the Bible is using to describe God's love. So we must affirm Wayne Grudem says that to picture God as existing in a form or mode of being that is like anything else in creation is to think of God in a horribly misleading and dishonorable way. When you start thinking of God having a body, the divinity having a body, not taking on flesh, that's different, but that God has a body. God is in heaven with a body or parts or hands that are like ours. That is not correct. And that's where idolatry starts. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. What's an idol? It's an attempt to try to make God be contained in some kind of representation, some kind of physical, material thing. Any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. That includes God. God is in heaven above. And so we are not to try to somehow picture him. Uh, That's Deuteronomy 5, 7 to 8. So, The important part about spirituality, I think most of us realize, you know, God is, the divinity is not contained or has a body. Uh, We also realize that that Christ took on flesh, the Son of God took on flesh when he came to the earth. But let's practically apply it and not put up these images of God or even even we got to be careful in some of our kids books, man, bad theology. They're picturing this old guy with a long beard, sometimes with a red hat and bells and... (laughs) And kids grow up, you know, the old man upstairs. You know, he's just the old man. God looks like that old man in that book. So we've got to take all of scripture into our minds and our study when we're thinking about that. And other places it corrects going too far with that thinking and saying no one has seen God at any time. And that God is got a spirit. So, okay, what does that mean talking about those body parts? That's, again, anthropomorphism. Because how else do you understand God's love for you? We have to relate it to something we know, which is ourselves and, you know, relationships. They, they've moved away. So we've got we to end class because everybody's waiting on us to come in here. So, Lord, thank you so much for our study today. And help us to apply these truths that we've learned about you into our lives. And even like this discussion we just had about images, help us to be pure in our thinking and our lives, not to ever assume that we can understand what you look like, as you have no body, or even what Christ once looked like. He is our, our perfect Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from all forms of idolatry, whether it's in our heart or in the actual practice in the world. And so we pray that you would make us holy, help us to know you better. In the name of Jesus, amen.